This podcast contains general health information and shouldn't be relied on as medical advice. Information is current at the time of recording. If you have any health concerns, speak to your doctor. HCF doesn't endorse any statements or opinions made during the podcast. HCF acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders past and present. Welcome to Menopause Matters, the series that helps you navigate menopause, brought to you by HCF, Australia's largest not-for-profit health fund. I'm your host, Ali Bray Datto. Throughout this series, I've been talking with a range of experts, offering insights and advice. And today we're looking what happens to our bodies during menopause, the changes that we face and what we can do to deal with them to live a happy, healthy life and thrive through our menopause. Wouldn't that be awesome? Look, this is a huge topic and one I'm really excited to delve into. I struggled deeply with my evolving body shape and I know many women feel the same way. What we were once able to eat or drink may end up becoming something that just seems to add more weight. So we can also be recommended a million different diets and routines to try and it can be so overwhelming. But... We have someone today. It's Emma Bardwell, and Emma is a registered nutritionist, a member of the British Menopause Society, and co-author of The Perimenopause Solution. I am so excited to talk to you, Emma. Welcome. And please just tell us what led you to be a specialist in this field in menopause. Hello, Ali. It's great to be here talking about my favorite things, which is nutrition and hormones. I went through perimenopause myself when I was 42. I found a real kind of lack of evidence-based information in my job. So I've always worked in nutrition, but it was only around that time that I actually started to specialize in menopause because I was just seeing time and time again that women weren't being served when it came to their health. Yeah, I think in the UK and probably the same in Australia, I think it's a global issue. There's this kind of massive health equality gender gap. And I guess what I'm trying to do is to bridge that gap by creating a platform where women can get non-judgmental results-focused support. And I know that you are very much about celebrating the change, celebrating menopause, which is very much contrary to what society and the media tells us that we should be doing. You know, we've got all these anti-aging and how to stay this and how to do that, haircuts for your age and all that sort of stuff. And I think with the right education and the support, we can look forward to transitioning through menopause. So what are some of the physical changes that happen to women's bodies during menopause? What can we expect? And I know that that's a big question because every woman's going to be different, but I'd love to hear it from you. It is a big question, primarily because there's said to be between, I don't know, 34 to 100 symptoms. No one can really agree on it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Those symptoms kind of affect women from the hair on the head right through to their toes. So it really is a kind of top to bottom symptomology. I won't go into them all because, you know, we'll be here all day, but they include things like hair loss, dry eyes, tinnitus, breast pain, palpitations, vaginal dryness itchy skin, joint pain, 
those kind of really common ones, those vasomotor symptoms that are things like hot flushes and night sweats. Lots of women think they're not entering into menopause unless or until they start having hot flushes. Mm. But actually, not every woman experiences hot flushes by any stretch. Yeah. Did you? I did, yes. You did? I had a lot of the textbook stuff for sure. Okay. When I Googled menopause for the first time and saw the list of symptoms, I was like, <laughs> I shut my computer down and I went, nope, I cannot deal with all of that. I was so horrified by the whole thing. And, and also that was my moment of like, what do you mean about menopause that I may be getting all these symptoms. I was so shocked. It's so overwhelming, right? No one had filled me in. It's so overwhelming. And yet, as I'm sure you know, not everyone's going to get symptoms at all. Some will get a lot, some will get them all. You know, it's such a mixed bag for women. Yeah, I think there's a lot of scaremongering and I think you're right. And that's what I try to do is to give this time, this transition, a real kind of positive spin. And I'm yeah. sure we can go into that later because there's lots of brilliant things about being perimenopausal and postmenopausal and about being entering into midlife and beyond that really doesn't get enough airtime. 25% of women won't experience any symptoms whatsoever. And obviously not everybody's going to get all of them. What does happen is women aren't prepared. And this is my kind of mantra, you know, you need to be prepared, not scared. Yes. I mean, I'm 51. I think you're around the same age, aren't you? Yeah, 53. Yep. So we're kind of Gen X. Prior to our generation, women just didn't really talk about this stuff. My mum's always like, my God, why are you always banging on about the menopause? We, <laughs> we just got on with it. You know, nobody made a fuss. We just yes. sucked it up and we carried on. But... A lot of women really fell through the net and it affects women really quite significantly, some women. And we know that there's this real kind of spike in women feeling very, very low. Divorces are happening. Women are leaving their jobs. And it's interesting too, when I talk to women our age as well, and I always ask, how was it going through for you as a child with your mum in menopause, do you remember? Mm. Some of them don't remember at all because I think some women just lock themselves away in a bedroom and just compartmentalize and denied that it was happening or just carried on in, in a stiff upper lip way. But a lot of them say, I remember my mum losing her mind and never knowing what on earth was going on. It's like she became a different person for a while there. Now, at least we've got resources. I love that you advocate for future proofing. I think it's a great term to future proof our perimenopause. What can women do then to prepare themselves? And, and let's start with perimenopause. Just educating yourself, knowing from the age of 30 onwards is having this awareness that it is going to happen. It happens yeah. to everybody. You're not going to be different. You're not going to escape it. And I think having that kind of understanding and that awareness almost do like a health audit around that time, talking about periods, you know, are, are you noticing any changes, any kind of mood disturbances, what's happening with your sleep, looking at cholesterol, looking at your blood pressure, checking your iron. I see so many women walking around with low iron right. and it makes them feel absolutely exhausted. You know, yes. a lot of these symptoms actually mimic those of menopause. So low iron, for example, your hair starts falling out you can get this kind of burning mouth type syndrome, which again is really common in perimenopause. You can feel very flat, very low. It can affect your sleep. You get restless legs. And actually, it's really easy to turn around. 
It's about getting those fundamentals in place can be super helpful in terms of, like we say, future-proofing health. If a doctor doesn't ask, you think you suggest going in at around that age, around the age of 40 and go, can we do a full blood workup and see where I am cholesterol-wise? Where am I lacking? Do you think that would be a good idea for all women to do? I think it would be a great old idea. And that's something that I offer women myself. I think it's just really important to get those kind of baseline bloods done and get those foundations set up and in place and optimal. I think a lot of people will have their bloods done and they will be told, oh, you know, you're in range, inverted commas, but actually you're suboptimal. And by getting your vitamin D levels or your folate or your B12 or even like your thyroid hormones, getting them replete and getting them kind of firing up really optimally can have a massive difference on how a woman goes through this next bit of their life. I know a lot of women are going to want to know this because one of the things that Dr. Google will tell you is weight gain in perimenopause menopause. (laughs) And I've been asked this myself, is there a way to prevent the weight gain? And what is it? Yeah, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? It's the thing that women come to see me about most. It's nuanced, it's multifactorial. I think we need to almost reframe this time of life so that women aren't trying to get back to this number. It's a number usually on the scales that women have in their heads that they're trying to get back to. And it might be their weight when they were, I don't know, 30 and they got married, for example. You can get there, but the effort that you have to put in is so immense that you have to question whether it's worth it or not. And what I've heard is that gaining a little weight is actually protective for us as we get older. We don't need to be losing weight in a lot of ways. We need to sort of have a little padding. Is that true? Have you heard that? Or is that just me wishful thinking? No, that is, oh, that's 100% true. So in studies, women who are carrying a little bit of extra weight actually have a longer health span than women who are super lean. Because like you say, you need that kind of little bit of a buffer in case you get ill further down the line. So it's like a kind of insurance policy. When you're looking down and you're seeing that kind of extra little meno pot that women often talk about. Oh, yes. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I have a wonderful one myself. <laughs> it's not a bad thing necessarily. We need to manage women's expectations. If we just go through some of the reasons why women put weight on around this time, I think maybe it will start to help women to put it into perspective. Your fat cells produce small amounts of estrogen. And what's happening around this time is that your estrogen levels are dropping, as we know. That's why we're getting all these symptoms. So your body recognises that the small amounts of estrogen are being produced in the fat cells. So it's quite reluctant to let those go. So that's one of the reasons potentially why it's so hard to actually lose weight. And the things that you used to do perhaps in your 20s and 30s just don't seem to kind of have the same effect anymore. Yeah. We're also losing muscle mass. You know, your muscle is metabolically active. So that means that you are using up more calories. The more muscle you have, the more calories that you're using. Within reason, it's usually only about 100, 150 a day. But, you know, that does add up. Unknowingly, sometimes we become more sedentary. You know, we're slowing down. We're probably exhausted because of the insomnia. You will know 
like the same as I, when I haven't slept well, I eat really badly the next day. It's all the stuff, you know, that you know you're not supposed to, but you just want that kind of quick energy fix. There's been lots of studies done on this and the average overconsumption of calories the day after a bad night's sleep is between 300 and 500. So that's quite significant. What do you suggest diet-wise? How big a change do we need to make in our diets? I think the good thing is you haven't got to overhaul your diet. And this is where I think a lot of women go wrong. They start to think that they've got to make these massive changes. It's like, I'm going to take out sugar. I'm no longer eating chocolate. I'm not touching dairy. Gluten is gone. I'm not going anywhere near carbs. And it's just not sustainable. So what happens is you've got this kind of yo-yo, you're on a diet, you're off a diet. And it makes women feel really tired, ashamed that they can't stick to anything. And it makes them feel really frustrated. What I try to tell women is you're in this for the long haul. You can lose weight 100%. It's actually no different than when you were in your 20s or 30s. You've got to get into that calorie deficit. But you don't have to make it extreme, but you do have to be consistent and you do have to make sure that you can do it sustainably. So we're looking at 300, 400 calorie reduction daily, ideally. You've got to do it consistently. It isn't going to happen overnight. And I think you have to add in all the other things too, which is 10,000 steps, ideally, you know, or building up your steps at least. So you've got that kind of non-exercise activity thermogenesis, what we call NEAT, just making sure that you are moving. If you, like me, in the 90s, we were real kind of cardio bunnies, pounding pavements, you know, running Mm. on treadmills and it was all about aerobic exercise. Actually, what we need to do is switch that up where possible and start building up our muscle, more resistance training, more dumbbells, more weights, more bodyweight workouts. And that's going to help us with that muscle mass. Yeah. Yeah. The more muscle you have, you know, it helps to build up your bone density too. Your bones are something that we really need to focus in on at this time because you are losing bone mass naturally from the age of like late 20s, 30s. And do hormones play a big part of that muscle mass and that loss? I mean, is that sort of just something that a man's going to experience as well? Or what does make us start to lose the muscle mass? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not sure I have the answer, but men naturally have more muscle than women anyway. We are more predisposed to laying down fat because biologically we are programmed to reproduce even if you don't have kids as you start to lose your estrogen we actually become slightly more kind of male shaped which is that kind of apple shape that's great it's really mean but it's great (laughs) (laughs) well and it just there's just so just not much you can do about it right no no and that's that's one of the things that it's like okay I put on weight. Hey, what am I going to do? Yeah. It just is what it is. I'm still the healthiest I've ever been. I'm just a different shape. (laughs) Yeah. I'm stronger. I can lift more. You know, I'm more resilient. But yeah, we do. We need to almost reframe it this time of life and manage women's expectations. In your 40s, 50s, you're not going to look like you did when you were 20. You do see women. There are women in the public eye who maybe do look like they did and it does feel like they are not aging but clearly 
they have a ton of help and it's their job, you know, all consumed by it. And we've just got other more important things going on, quite frankly. Absolutely. And there's no point in comparing ourselves to those women. My my son loves to tell me that Jennifer Lopez is the same age as me. And he always <laughs> says it like, leaves it hanging. And I'm like, I know, sweetheart, but she also has a chef. She also has an exercise trainer. She also has all these other things backing her up. And the woman works her butt off, which I think is yeah. fabulous. I think that's her job and she kills it. But I am not comparing myself to Jennifer Lopez for a second. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's not good for your mental health. I just wanted to go back to future proofing. Heart disease and osteoporosis are a huge risk factor for women post-menopause. So what can we do to try and mitigate that? Do we go into the weight-bearing exercise? How do we help ourselves with those two things, particularly the heart disease? We're hearing a lot about the connection with hormones and aging and menopause and disease. Women are most worried about breast cancer, but actually the biggest killer of women over the age of 50 is cardiovascular disease. So it is definitely something that we really want to hone in on. Weight comes into it. So just making sure that you are within a reasonable weight. You don't have to be super lean, as we've already discussed. Making sure that you're keeping an eye on your blood pressure. And in terms of diet, just looking at your saturated fat. Lots of conflicting headlines, but the totality of the research does say that saturated fat is very much linked with heart disease. Whilst we do need to include healthy fats in our diet, we do need to be minimising saturated fat from things like animal products mostly, but also things like coconut oil. So, you know, there's always these kind of trends in the nutrition world and coconut oil definitely had its day now. It has more saturated fat than lard. We often give certain ingredients these kind of health halo effects. So I think it's very important that women educate themselves about what they're putting into their mouths and how they are fueling their bodies. And then obviously just moving, moving your body is super important. Do what you can. Some women won't want to be lifting weights, but a walk is just as good. You know, it's just as effective. What I usually tell women is just to aim for an 80 20 approach. So 80% of the time you're doing what you need to do to stay on track. But we need to have that 20% of time off to hang out with girlfriends and have fun and, and kick our heels up, you know? Absolutely. It's really not sustainable trying to do the 100%. And it starts to feel more like a punishment than something that you're doing for your health. When it comes to nutrition, I think as well, at this time, there is a lot of restriction. So lots of women will see that muffin top. They will start to notice that their body is changing and they instantly start depriving themselves. And it doesn't work, as we've already talked about. You've got to be quite compassionate at this time of life and really start to talk kindly to yourself the way you would with your girlfriends. And that's something that has been a huge change for me. I didn't realize how unkind I spoke to myself until I reached perimenopause and menopause. And I thought, I can't actually do this anymore. I actually Mm. really need to change the way I talk to myself. And I have managed to flip that on its head and it's actually been the best thing. So it's also one of the things that I love being able to talk to women about, that it's a positive change. 
while we're talking about diet and nutrition, and you'd mentioned about the saturated fats and sort of cutting out meat, how then do we get the protein and how important is protein? Yeah, so I'm not by any means suggesting cut out all meat. I think you right. know, we should yeah. be aiming for a kind of Mediterranean style way of eating. Mm. So that is oily fish, lots of fresh seasonal produce where possible, lots of fruit and veg, lots of fibre, healthy fats through things like avocados and olive oil and nuts and seeds. Great for skin, great for hair. It was carried out in Australia called the SMILES trial, whereby the Mediterranean diet was shown to be really helpful for things like mood and anxiety. It just shows the impact of nutrition. I think nutrition and lifestyle can be incredibly powerful. There is definitely a place for meat. I think we just need to make sure that we're keeping it quite nice and diverse. So there's a kind of emphasis, isn't there, that protein equals animal products. But actually, you can get protein from things like Greek yogurt, tofu, beans, edamame beans, lentils, cottage cheese, ricotta cheese. All of these things are great options, I think, to have up your sleeve. You don't always need to turn to meat, but I'm very much a an advocate of eat a little bit of everything. That's what I love about food and nutrition, that it is something that you can implement tomorrow. You can immediately start incorporating things that you're talking about, like the Mediterranean diet and it's an easy shift. With the 80-20, you still allowed your block of chocolate. <laughs> you absolutely are, You still are, allowed Ali. your glass of wine if you want to. <laughs> 100%. Life is hard enough without taking all of that stuff out. That's right. Let's keep it real. <laughs> totally. We hear a lot about gut health and there's been a real move towards focusing on that and the connection between gut health and depression as well. What can we do to make our guts very happy? We've got these 40 trillion good bacteria and viruses residing in our gut. The research is showing that we need to feed them in order for them to thrive and in order for them to make these chemicals that go off into other places in the body. It's not just in the gut. They talk to your brain, they impact your immune health, and they actually impact things like hormones too. So we need to keep them super happy. And the best way to do that is by feeding them fibre. So lots of different types. Sometimes when we think of fibre, we think of all bran, right? Yeah. But actually fibre comes in different kind of shapes and sizes throughout nutrition. Primarily though, plant foods. Does it come in chocolate? Is there any <laughs> Sadly chocolate? Sadly not. Sadly <laughs> not. But I tell you what chocolate does have dark chocolate, it has something called polyphenols, which feeds these gut bacteria too. There is definitely something to be said for eating dark chocolate. When you feed these bacteria, they produce what's called short chain fatty acids, which then kind of signal and help with things like mood. The way to do that is to really give them lots of different diverse types of fibre. There was a study called the American Gut Project, which linked 30 different types of plants a week to an increased diversity in the microbiome. So I think for lots of women, that might sound quite overwhelming. But once you start to break it down, so you that includes things like whole grains, so things like oats and, and brown rice, 
quinoa. It includes nuts and seeds, legumes, so things like chickpeas and beans and peas and all your herbs and spices, you know, that you might add into curries and things like that, as well as fruit and veg. Adding in a handful of mixed leaves, for example, each of those different coloured leaves will feed a different type of bacteria in your microbiome. It's almost like whenever you're thinking about what to eat, you're trying to get in plenty of diversity, plenty of colour, plenty of different textures. All of those different things are feeding different aspects of your microbiome. Is that specific to menopause, perimenopausal women, just being able to have that kind of gut biome that we need to have? Do we become more sensitive as we age in our gut health? Yeah, we do. So lots of women will come to me and say that they've noticed real shifts in their digestion. So lots of bloating, a bit more constipation, more kind of IBS type symptoms. These are really, really common. We actually have oestrogen receptors throughout our body, you know, literally from the hair follicles in your head right down to your toe joints. And that's why we experience these symptoms throughout our bodies. We've got these oestrogen receptors actually in our gut lining. So what happens is when you start to lose your oestrogen, as those levels start to deplete, your digestion can slow down. That's one of the main reasons why lots of women will notice that these digestive shifts are happening. I know that you're a big fan of finding foods that mimic estrogen. I didn't even know that there was such a thing, so I'm excited to hear about that from you. Can you talk me through what foods actually do this and why they're so useful when we're navigating perimenopause? Yeah, this is really exciting, I think. It empowers women. It gives them something that they can actually do and take control. So these foods are called phytoestrogens. So phyto just means plant. So it's basically a plant estrogen. So an estrogen that kind of mimics the estrogen that we produce in our bodies. I think a lot of women are like, oh God, you know, if they are worried about being estrogen dominant, for example, or if they have a history of estrogen receptor positive cancer, they're like, oh my God, you know, I've got to steer clear of these foods. Actually, these foods don't increase the blood levels of estrogen that you have in your body, but they just act in a similar way. So they kind of dock on to the estrogen receptor and they can turn it on or they can turn it off. Quite complicated. But I think for anyone listening, the thing that they need to remember is these phytoestrogens come in two different forms. The two main ones are soya products and lignans. So soya products are things like edamame beans, tofu, tempeh, soya milk, soya yogurt, you know, all of those things. And then the lignans are things like flax seeds, chickpeas, lots of legumes, pistachio nuts, cherries, broccoli, things like that. Basically lots of plant foods. The more plant foods that women include, they don't have to be vegan by any stretch, but the more plant-centric your diet is, lots of studies have shown that women get fewer symptoms, menopause symptoms, particularly those vasomotor symptoms, so things like hot flushes and night sweats. We've talked about diet. We touched earlier on sleep and the importance of sleep. My goodness, I don't even know where to begin when I'm talking about my own sleep and how elusive it is. That to me was by far the hardest thing that I've dealt with and I'm still dealing with it in some ways. Whether you're perimenopause, menopause, doesn't matter. It's the cornerstone of health is getting a good night's sleep. How do we 
do that, Emma. <laughs> Please tell us women who are struggling, can food help us get a good night's sleep and what are those foods? Yes, it is the touchstone of everything, isn't it? Very often it's the first thing that women find that they suffer from. It's quite often the first symptom because your progesterone is the first kind of hormone that starts to deplete during that perimenopause transition. And your progesterone is linked to a good night's sleep. You know, it's linked to calming feelings and feelings of kind of well-being and contentment. But yes, there is lots that we can do. And I think anyone listening will probably know all of these already. There's nothing I haven't come up with some kind of amazing solution yes that, that <laughs> nobody's ever heard of before but I think what happens is we know all this stuff but we're not actually that good at putting it into place the biggest thing is scrolling on phones at 10 o'clock it's almost like we're hardwired to be strapped to our phones at all times and it just that blue light doesn't help so that is something it's difficult, but I think women need to really try and put in place and not just once or twice a week, but to do it religiously. Leave your phone downstairs so that it isn't talking to you and tempting you to pick it up and have that kind of last minute scroll. I think as well in terms of eating, I'm not particularly into intermittent fasting, but I do like the idea of time restricted eating whereby we finish our last meal kind of three hours, at least two to three hours before we go to bed. Because what happens is if you're digesting food, your body temperature is raised and that makes it much harder to fall asleep. I think as well, it's really important to balance your blood sugar throughout the day. So if you're kind of living on lots of refined carbs, you know, lots of caffeine, maybe you are having a couple of glasses of wine before you go to bed, this can cause a kind of crash in blood sugar levels around, it's usually around two, three o'clock. And then women find that they wake up, they're super anxious, maybe they've got palpitations. Sometimes that in itself will bring on a kind of a night sweat. It's quite debilitating. It makes for a really kind of fractured night's sleep. All of those things are spot on for what was triggering lack of sleep for me. So I gave away having a drink. Not that I drank very much, but I noticed that if I did have red wine, it would trigger a bit more of a hard night's sleep. Definitely the sugar I was stopped having caffeine past four o'clock. So I was taking all those little steps just to see, you know, and I, and I feel like I found myself experimenting like, okay, can I have a cup of tea? Can I not? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That made a difference. Can I do this? Can I not do that? And if it's not making a difference to your sleep, then of course have the glass of wine, but it was for me. And so I was willing to literally do anything. <laughs> I think it's really good to have those routines. So it's almost like like you do with a kid, you know, with a baby. Yeah. You have those wind down routines. And I think our bodies respond to that really well. Having a bath, I often use Epsom salts, big quantities of Epsom salts, because that magnesium, you can actually absorb it through your skin. It's really good for restless legs. It's really good just for, for muscle aches. It's really good for calming you down. And I swear by pillow sprays and lavender tea and all of these things. It's just part of my kind of nightly ritual. It's really important. 
We talked about osteoporosis a little bit earlier. I just want to circle back and talk about the importance of calcium and upping this in our diets to help increase bone density. Obviously, we always hear about dairy products. What else can we do to up our calcium? Calcium, vitamin D are both really important at this time. So you can get it from lots of different sources. It isn't just dairy. You can get it from fortified plant milks. Just make sure that you check the label because if they are organic, they're not actually allowed to be fortified. So make sure you're choosing one that has calcium added into it. We can get calcium from fish with small bones where you eat the bones. You know, those little bones are actually full of calcium. Almonds, green leafy vegetables, things like kale and spinach and watercress, broccoli, tofu. Again, check the labels. It will say calcium set on it usually if it contains calcium. Soya milk, things like tahini. So there's lots of different sources. You've helped us already so much with what we can eat and what we can do for our bodies. Is there any other steps that you feel are key in preparing ourselves for perimenopause? Where do we begin? How do we, how do we future-proof even before the symptoms start? Educating yourself, making sure that you are aware of what might potentially happen to your body, starting to track your periods, I think is super important because quite often that's one of the first things that kind of goes awry, making sure that you are using, either writing it down in a journal or a diary or using, you know, there's loads of brilliant apps, just kind of creating a bit of a support network. You've Mm. talked about it already, kind of alluded to the fact that you can talk to your girlfriends. I think this is something that we don't discuss or put enough emphasis on. It's really important to have your tribe around you a kind of trusted tribe that you can have a laugh with, but also vent and swap stories with. I think it's major. And the importance of talking with your partner as well, if you're in a relationship and sharing what you're going through so they understand as well and they're on the same page with you. Is there any kind of exercise that is really best at this time? I know you mentioned weight bearing, but what more can we do exercise-wise that is really going to help us? Don't overthink it. For most women, just getting some physical activity, getting those 150 minutes of physical activity in a week is your kind of starting point. If you can then add on a couple of strength-based sessions weekly, that's brilliant. But I think there is a real tendency to kind of think that more is better. Doing too much can actually create chronic levels of stress and can exacerbate that weight gain around the middle, can exacerbate things like insomnia, can exacerbate tiredness. So we do have to be quite sensible. There's this real nice kind of movement now towards what we call microdosing. So, you know, taking small amounts of whatever it is, this new healthy habit that you're trying to instigate and trying to implement it that way, rather than thinking that you've got to do all these things for a long time. You haven't. Short, sharp is just as effective, I think. Do you find that things like Pilates, particularly like the reformer Pilates, is good for women at this point? It's brilliant in terms of breath work, you know, lots of, we haven't really talked about mindfulness, but that's so important. And it doesn't have to be meditating, cross-legged. Pilates and that connection with the breath is really important. And again, it's just time to yourself. 
It's really important for things like lower back pain. Lots of women I know, and I include myself in this, started to have really bad lower back pain in my early 40s. Pilates has been an absolute game changer for that. Me too. And the other thing I've implemented a lot more is swimming because I find that swimming also helps clear my brain a lot of the time as well. That can be a way to help me with mindfulness. What do you have tips around mindfulness? How else can we assist ourselves with that? Learning to breathe correctly, just taking time every now and then just to monitor, you know, are you breathing in a really kind of shallow way into your chest and swapping that down so that you are breathing doesn't have to be for very long. And if you feel yourself getting really anxious, making sure that your out breath is longer than your in breath, put your hand on your stomach and just breathing into your abdomen just a couple of times can be incredibly powerful. That makes so much sense. And just even hearing that for myself today, (laughs) I know that you're really keen on women having advocacy at this time in their lives and embracing the journey rather than it being such a huge chore. What are some words of wisdom that we can give to women so it feels like they can grasp this with two hands and feel like they've got a bit of control and a bit of power around this time? Don't take on too much. Small baby steps, little tweaks. You can't do everything overnight. Little tweaks here and there. Do them for two, three months. Get them really part of your new lifestyle and then you can start adding more in. Don't be tempted to too much too soon. I think a 10 minute walk is the kind of elixir of life. Yeah. (laughs) It's brilliant for just calming yourself down. It's really good to get out in nature if you can do that. But even just a trot around the block will help with things like insulin resistance and making sure that your kind of your blood sugar levels are really nice and level. Emma Bardwell, thank you so much for your time. You've just been a font of knowledge for all of us. For anyone who's listening and thinking, Oh God, you know, if they're younger and they're thinking, my God, I've got all this to come. Actually, it can be a time of real enlightenment and a real kind of time of empowerment. And I see a lot of women around midlife who are totally kicking ass when it comes to their careers, you know, their relationships and just their kind of sense of self. Me too. And that's exactly the message that women who are just beginning perimenopause or haven't even started, they need to hear that message. It's so important to know that, that there is so much to look forward to. Menopause is not the end of the story for women at all. There's so much more to it. And menopause can be the change that you might need to get yourself in a much better headspace and physical space. Yeah. You've still got hopefully half your life left to live. And you just want to make sure that you are really thriving, you know, not just surviving. And there's lots, there's lots that you can do. Emma, thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Menopause Matters. In the next episode, I'll be chatting with a hilarious duo, author Kathy Lett, a vocal advocate for the joys of life post-menopause, and author, comedian Jean Kitson whose book, You're Still Hot to Me, recounted her own experience dealing with menopause and finding joy on the other side. It's going to be a ripper. 
We'll be talking about the unexpected upsides of postmenopause, so you don't want to miss this one. HCF believes in being a trusted health partner for members, delivering practical tips and real-life stories to help take charge of your health and well-being. For more helpful information about menopause and all things women's health, head to hcf.com.au forward slash women's health. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review Menopause Matters. It helps more women get access to great menopause insights. I'm Ali Bray-Daddo. Thanks so much for listening. If you're struggling and want to speak to someone now, call Lifeline on 13 11 14.